السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته الحمد لله رب العالمين والصلاة والسلام على أشرف الأنبياء والمرسلين وعلى آله وأصحابه أجمعين. Okay, welcome back to our Dhuhr series, the story of the slander of Aisha رضي الله تعالى عنها. So we're going to continue right along where we stopped. So in the last lesson. Uh, we talked about uh, the beginning of this journey, and this is where Aisha radiallahu she begins narrating that um, they were heading out on their journey back to Medina. Aisha radiallahu she said, "Kan Rasulullah sallallahu alaihi wasallam ida arada an yakhruj akra'a bayna azwajihi." That when the Prophet sallallahu wasallam wanted to travel that he would draw lots between his wives, all right? He would draw lots between his wives. And that was the way for him to be fair between his wives, rather than him saying, I'm going to take this one and not take that one. He would draw lots, meaning he would put the arrows inside the quiver. He would attach a name to each arrow in the quiver, shake the quiver around, and then draw an arrow from the quiver. And whoever name came up, that was the person that was going to travel with him. So that was that was a fair way of deciding who was going to travel with him. And that brought us to um, our lesson number six. Uh, and that was the fairness of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam between his wives. And this is, uh, as I said before, the single most important requisite for a man being in polygyny. The single most important requisite for a man being in polygyny is that he has the ability to be fair, to be just between his wives. As Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, as I mentioned in the ayah, in surah number four, ayah three, where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, فَإِنْ خِفْتُمْ أَلَّا تَعْدِلُوا فَوَاحِدَةً أَوْ مَا مَلَكَتْ يَمِينُكَ that if you, um, uh, if you do not, if you fear that you cannot be fair between your wives, then restrict yourself to one wife. And we explained that fairness is, not, uh, is different than being equitable. Equitable is making sure that everyone has based upon their needs, while being fair um, or being equal means that everybody is given the same thing. And that is not what is in... Uh, what is understood from al-adil, al-adil, fairness or um, justice or fairness between one's wives does not mean equality. It does not mean that everyone is treated equally. It means that everyone is treated according to what their situation necessitates. So it's more of, you know, equ- being equitable, a man being equitable between his wives rather than being equal. And as we said before that the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam It wasn't an obligation on him uh, To be fair in terms of the nights that he spent between his wives That was not an obligation upon him That was something that the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam was excused from Based upon the ayah in Surah Ahzab, Surah number 33, ayah 51 where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said, Turji min tasha min hunna wa tu'wi ilayka min tasha. That you can take any woman from amongst them, from amongst your wives as you will, meaning you can go to the house 
or go to any one of your wives that you would like. And you can leave any one of your wives that you like. Meaning you can go to whom, whomsoever's house you would like to. It's totally up to you, your choice. And although exercising fairness in that regard between his wives was not an obligation on the Prophet ﷺ, he still chose to exercise fairness to the highest degree. He exercised the highest degree of fairness between his wives, even though it was not an obligation for him to do so. Even though it was not an obligation for him to do so. And this is because he is al-Qudwa. He is the role model. He is the one who is going to set the standard for the men in our community. And that within itself is a lesson. That even though the Prophet ﷺ was not obligated to be fair in terms of the nights that he spent between his wives, he still exercised fairness. So what about men who have, who, who have multiple wives, who are in polygyny, and it is an obligation on them to exercise fairness, and they still don't exercise fairness. They still don't exercise fairness. And here is the Messenger of Allah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam where it was not obligatory on him to exercise fairness between his wives in terms of the nights that he spent between them, but yet we still find him exercising the highest standard of fairness. And on, as we can see, uh, that on some trips, the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, he would take you know, his wives, sometimes he would take more than one wife. As we know, many narrations, many situations where he's traveling and he has Aisha and Hafsa. He has Aisha and Sophia. He has, you know, uh, Aisha and um, um Salama. So, you know, when he went to go make Umrah, he had Um Salama with him. All right. And then he commanded the Sahaba to slaughter their animals and shave their heads. And they didn't want to, they didn't move. And then he went into the tent and Um Salama said, well, you know, are you okay with them not following your instructions? You go out. You go out. You shave your head. You slaughter your animal and they will follow you. So you understand that is the Prophet Sallallahu numerous occasions where he took his wives with him. So we could see that it was a common practice with the Sahaba that they would take their wives with them along their journeys and their war expeditions. And this is because there's nothing like a woman's companionship. So how does a married man approach a single woman and proposition them? I don't understand. If a man is marrying a woman and it's just him and her in a monogamous situation, there is no rotation of days. All of the days belong to her. There is no rotation of days. Um, so as we can see, it was a common practice with the Sahaba to take their wives along with them uh, in their journeys. And this is because there's nothing like a woman's companionship. There's nothing like a woman's companionship. At night, they would lay with their wives and when the, those companions who were wounded, you know, they would tend to the wounded. Uh, and of course, when the Prophet Sallallahu of the Sahaba needed advice, you know, the women were always there for them to get advice. As Aisha she said, I don't know any man who sought advice more than the Prophet Sallallahu I don't know any man who sought advice more than the Prophet Sallallahu Alright? And so there, yes, absolutely, there's nothing like the companionship and the comfort of a woman. It just, you know, we just wish that men in our day and time, you know, most men would understand that. Alright? So, it also shows that they valued their women. They didn't just leave them home 
and go on these long trips, go on long journeys. You know, sometimes brothers, they want to travel with other brothers and they go for long periods of time, days on end. <laughs> you understand? Would I explain the women on the battlefield? Yes, absolutely. Not to mention the women on the battlefield nursing the wounded. There are times when the women on the battlefield ran out to fight to protect the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Nusayba, she ran out on the battlefield to protect the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam during the Battle of Uhud. So it wasn't like they were just there bring, being nurses and tending to the, you know, attending to the, the wounded. These women also ran out on the battlefield to fight. Aisha asked the Prophet Sallallahu Ya Rasulullah, Jihad. O Messenger of Allah, do women have to, can women fight jihad? And the Prophet Sallallahu said, no, they, they can fight jihad, just the jihad that doesn't involve fighting. And that is Hajj and Umrah. That's the woman's jihad. Her jihad is Hajj and Umrah. But you can see that there was a desire for the women to help out. So they weren't just on the battlefield tending to, you know, the, those who were, you know, wounded. But they, there are instances when they ran out on the battlefield to help. You know, some scholars mentioned that Um Salama also went with the Prophet Sallallahu along this journey. It also shows that women in polygyny, they value and they cherish what women in monogamy take for granted sometimes. That a woman in polygyny, a woman in polygyny, she cherishes what a woman in monogamy sometimes takes for granted. And that is that a woman in polygyny sees the time that she spends with her husband as a right of hers and as a privilege. Time is, you know, of the essence to a woman in polygyny. Whereas a, a woman in monogamy, sometimes she takes that for granted. You know, she wants her husband to leave so she can have time to herself. Whereas a woman in polygyny, the husband automatically leaves because he's splitting his time between multiple wives, which automatically gives the woman some time to herself. All right. So Aisha, uh, and continuing with the story, Aisha, she said, Aisha says, so um, he drew lots. You know, he drew lots between his wives uh, going out to a particular battle. And Aisha never mentions the battle. All right. She never mentions the actual name of the battle. Obviously, the details of war and battle is for the men. Women don't usually get into the details of that. So Aisha said that he um, he drew lots between his wives uh, for a war expedition that he went out on. And she's talking about the battle of Beni Musfadah. She said, She said, so my arrow was pulled from the quiver. So I went on, I went on this journey with the Prophet. So Aisha is giving us the backstory of how she actually even ended up on this trip to begin with. So she's taking us backwards, taking us backwards only to go forward. She's taking us backwards, explaining to us how she even ended up on this journey to begin with. The Prophet Sallallahu was heading out to go to war with Beni Mustalib. He drew lots between his wives and Aisha's name came up. So Aisha says, so I left out with him. She said, Ba'dama nazal al-hijab. She said, and this was after, pay attention to her words. She said, this was after the revelation of hijab. Meaning this incident, or me going out on this particular war expedition, this happened, this incident happened 
after Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealed the, the ayats dealing with hijab. Question, let me see who can get this. Why did Aisha mention this? Why did Aisha mention that this incident happened, or I went out with him on this particular war expedition after Allah had revealed the ayat of hijab? Question. Why did Aisha mention this? Let me see if we can catch this. Why did Aisha say that this incident happened after Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealed the ayat of hijab? The hijab added to her modesty? Nope. Not sure why, but the benefit for us shows that hijab doesn't limit us. Okay? To ensure modesty? Nope. Why did she say this incident happened after Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala had revealed to let, to let us know that she was dressed modestly? Close. Very close. Very close. They didn't go out on war expeditions before hijab? No, they did. They did. Because she was in her covering on her camel. The ayat of hijab is kind of what led up to this situation happening. The whole reason that Aisha, you know, was riding in what is called a hodij. A hodij is the little compartment that women would ride on. On, they would put the, the, the compartment on top of the camel and the women would sit in this compartment, right? They would sit in this compartment with a veil covering the front so they can take off their hijab, all right? So as we're going to see when we get into the story, the camel kneeled down. Aisha got out, got out of the holdage to go use the bathroom. And that's how she ended up getting left because she lost her necklace, and she ended up getting left. And those who were the camel, the camel that was carrying Aisha's tent, as Aisha's going to explain, that Aisha was a young girl and she wasn't very heavy. So they didn't even know that she was missing. So Aisha's saying that this happened after the revelation of the hijab, giving us a little window into why this whole situation happened. It doesn't mean that before the hijab, women didn't go out. No, women went out. However, women before the revelation of hijab, they didn't have to ride in the little tent on top of the camel. They sat on the animal right along with their husbands. They sat right on the camel along with their husbands. They rode right behind their husbands on horses, on camels, on donkeys. They were right there. But when the revelation of hijab came down, the women that traveled on the war expeditions, they started to sit in the hodage because now they had to shield themselves. Not to mention it's hot. And in the little tent that's sitting on top of the camel, they get to take off their, you know, their, their hijab. They get to take off their um, niqab if they wore niqab. You understand? So Aisha's given us, you know, a little, a little window into why this whole situation unfolded. Why it unfolded. The verse of the hijab, there were two ayats of the hijab. 
Does anyone know exactly when the eye of hijab was revealed? So prior to prior to the revelation of the ayat of hijab, women used to ride on the camels with their husbands. Women used to ride on camels with their husbands. All right, men is behind them. So just think that a woman is on the back of a camel with her husband and then I and my wife, we're right behind them. So the camel's moving, I can see the movement of her hips in front of me. She wasn't wearing a hijab, so I can actually see her. But when, you know, when the ayat of hijab was revealed, women didn't ride like that anymore. And yes, the ayat of hijab was revealed the year before, in the fifth year. The fifth year after hijrah. You guys follow me? So Aisha is kind of, Aisha is giving us you know, a window into what led up to the situation to begin with. All right? Not saying that the ayat of hijab was the cause of the situation, but the fact that Allah revealed the ayat of hijab the year before put her in the situation that she ended up in because now she's riding in the tent. Prior to that, she would have just been on the back of the camel with the Prophet. There was no need to ride in the tent. Which means that she probably wouldn't have ended up in that situation. Wallahu a'lam. Alright? But she's saying that this incident happened after the revelation of hijab. Which happened the year before. So she's given us the timeline. So, let's look at the ayat of hijab. There were two ayats in the Quran that were revealed about hijab. The first one is Surah Al-Ahzab, Surah number 33. Surah number 33, ayah 59. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says very clearly to the Prophet Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, he said, O oh Prophet, look look at how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala addresses the Prophet sallallahu directly. Ya ayyuhan nabi, O Prophet. He didn't say, O oh, you who believe. He didn't say, O oh, mankind. He didn't say, Ya nisa and nabi, O women of the Prophet. He didn't say any of that. He started with the Prophet sallallahu Ya ayyuhan nabi, O oh, Prophet. Kulli azwajika, say to your wives. وَبَنَاتِكَ and to your and to your daughters, الْمُؤْمِنِينَ and the believing women, that they should draw their jilbabs over their clothes. So no woman should say there's nothing in the Quran that tells women to wear a jilbab or to wear an abaya or to wear an overgarment. Yes, it does. Allah clearly says jalabib, which is the plural of jilbab. Alright? Min bihinna That the women say to you, O Prophet, say to your wives, to your daughters, to the believing women, that they should draw their jilbab, they should draw their garments over their clothes. This is so that they will be known as respectable women. They will be known as respectable women. And they will not be harmed on account of their dress. 
So much wisdom in this ayah that if Muslim women would pay attention to this today, Muslim women in many regards have moved so far away from the hijab, the proper Islamic hijab, it is ridiculous. It is ridiculous. But the moving away, the detachment from the proper understanding of the hijab is not the issue. That is just a symptom of the real issue. So it's asinine for us to sit back and admonish the women and you know badger the women about how they dress and overlook the, the, the root causes of that. The root cause of the reason why many Muslim women dress the way that they dress today, it is not, it is not because they don't understand the hijab. There's a, big, there's a bigger issue here, which I will touch on here. So it's asinine for us to do lectures and to do, you know, all of these workshops and seminars on trying to get the Muslim women to understand, you know, to understand the importance of the proper Islamic hijab when there are other root causes. A woman not observing the proper Islamic hijab is just a symptom of a bigger problem. It's a symptom of a bigger problem. It is not the problem. I'm, I'm not going to blast Muslim women out about how they dress because that is just a symptom of the real problem. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said, this is so that you will be known, you're you will be known as respectable women, and you will be not be harmed on account of your dress. And Allah is forgiving and merciful, meaning for how you used to dress previously. Allah is merciful and forgiving and merciful as it relates to how you used to dress previously. But if you notice in the ayat, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentioned, right? O Prophet, say to your wives. Why did Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala start with the Prophet's wives? He said, O Prophet, say to your wives and your daughters and the believing women. Why did Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala start with the wives of the Prophet Because they are the example, right? They are the example. They are the qudwa of the ummah. These women are the example, right? They have to lead by example. So being married to the Prophet came with a price tag of responsibility and obviously subsequent accountability, Right? So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala started with them. So the wives of the Prophet وسلم, during that time were Aisha, Hafsa, um, Um Habiba, Um Salama Sauda, uh, Zainab, and Maymuna. Those were his wives during the time that that ayat was revealed. And then there's another ayat for hijab in Surah to Noor, Surah number 24. All right, and that is 24, ayat 31. 2431, where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, And let the woman, let the women draw their khimars, draw their, the khimar here means it starts from the head, meaning would be considered an overhead abaya, it starts from the head and it just covers the rest of the body. 
And let them draw their cloaks over their bosoms, meaning to cover the top part of their body, and it drapes all the way down to the floor. And this is in Surah 24, Ayah 31. And the thing is, is if the if Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala address the wives of the Prophet ﷺ first, and they are supposed to be the role models, then why aren't Muslim women taking the Sahabiyat as role models? Why aren't they taking them as role models? They were the examples to follow. Why are you not following their example? Why are you, you know, you have to ask yourself as a woman, why are you not following the example of the wives of the Prophet ﷺ? How they used to dress, how they wore their jilbab, how they wore their abayas is documented, well documented in our religion. But we don't find Muslim women taking them as their example. And that's part of the problem. So it's just, it's almost like it's, you know, just irrelevant. You know, why would the Prophet ﷺ, why would Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala make the wives of the Prophet ﷺ by addressing them first about the hijab, making them the standard, but then Muslim women would come along later on and not even know anything about the description of how the Prophet ﷺ's wives used to dress. If I were to ask any woman on here right now, describe to me the dress of the Sahabiyat. Describe to me based upon authentic texts from Quran and Sunnah how the Sahabiyat used to dress. Very few from amongst you would be able to give me that. Yet they are your role model. So let me take you back to when that ayat was revealed. Let me take you back to when that ayat was revealed. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, when he revealed the ayat of hijab, that created, that changed, there was a paradigm shift in Medina because all the way up until that point, women were dressing normally. Women just wore their normal clothes. There was no hijab. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealing the ayat of hijab, it changed the dynamics of their, uh, of their society. Things changed because women were no longer allowed to just come outside in their normal clothes. Now they had to wear, you understand? Now they have to wear an abaya, a garment over top of their clothes. So it changed everything. Can you imagine? If Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealed the ayat of hijab in the fifth year after hijrah, how many years had passed since Angel Jibreel came to the Prophet ﷺ in the cave of Hira and said to him, Iqra? How many years? How many years had passed all the way up until the time that Allah revealed the ayat of hijab? That Muslim women were not obligated to wear anything. They could wear their regular clothes. How long had this gone on? 15 years? Exactly. 13 years in Mecca. And then, uh, you know, no, actually not 15 years. 18 years. 18 years. Because they were in Mecca for 13 years. Right or wrong? They were in Mecca for 13 years. Abu, Ta uh, Abu Talib and Khadija died the fifth year, the tenth year after revelation, and then they stayed there for another three years before they migrated. So that was thirteen years in Mecca, 
And then five years into Medina for a total of 18 years. Think about that for a moment. So here you are as a convert to Islam. For the past 18 years of your life, there was no mention, no talk about your dress or anything. People were free, women were free to move about as they were. And then lo and behold, out of nowhere, in the fifth year after Hijrah, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala reveals the ayat of hijab. O Prophet, say to your wives, your daughters, and the believing women that they should draw their garments over their bodies. Changes everything. Changes everything. But now my question is, why did Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wait so long? Why did Allah wait so long? <laughs> no, it's cool. It's cool. It's a total of 18 years. Why did Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wait so long? Pay attention because this is the reason why Muslim women don't adorn themselves with the or don't observe the proper Islamic dress today. Why did Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wait so long? So they would be able to accept it. Very good. It would have been it would have been burdensome. For Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to reveal the hijab in the Meccan period. Why? Because they were just trying to survive. And this is also, as I said before, this is one of the reasons why the Prophet ﷺ did not take another wife while he was in Mecca. The focus was not on the intricacies of Islam. They were trying to survive in Mecca. There was a bounty on the Prophet's head. Don't you know that? There was a bounty, a hundred camels, whoever brings me Muhammad dead or alive, Quraysh. This is not the time to reveal hijab. This is not the time, you know, for men to take on second wives and third wives. You understand? That's, that's not the time for that. They're in survival mode. And when a person is in survival mode and their basic needs are not being met, it is asinine for you to pile on top of them, you know, subsidiary obligations and, and, you know, and instructions that is going to divert them from the overall goal. (laughs) They were practicing Islam in secret. Yes, they were hiding most of the 10 people who were promised Jannah. Who converted to Islam did not convert to Islam at the hands of the Prophet. They converted to Islam at the hands of Abu Bakr. The Prophet wasn't free to move about Mecca as he wanted to, he had to hide. So, this was not the time for the revelation of hijab. This was the time for survival. This was the time to understand, you know, the, the, the founding principles of the religion. And that is La ilaha illallah Muhammad Rasulullah. Your loyalty to La ilaha illallah Muhammad Rasulullah. So let me give you a glimpse at what happened 18 years into Islam. And then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala reveals, right, the ayat of hijab. Let me give you a glimpse. Aisha, she captured for us what the scenery was like when Allah revealed the ayat of hijab. Aisha captured for us the scenery in Medina when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealed the ayat of hijab. Aisha said, She said, may Allah have mercy 
on the early migrant women, meaning the women who migrated from Mecca to Medina, may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala have mercy upon them. May Allah have mercy upon the early migrant women, the women who migrated from Mecca to Medina. May Allah have mercy upon them. She said, That when Allah revealed the verse of hijab, That these women tore the bottom of their skirts and began covering their hair with it. Obviously, during that time, they wore long skirts. They wore, they wore long skirts. So there was room for them to tear the end of the skirt and the skirt still be long enough to cover their feet or long enough to cover their ankles. Aisha said these women used to tear, when Allah revealed the ayat of hijab, these women tore the bottom of their garments and began covering their hair with it. You understand? Th- this is Aisha giving us, you know, an ex- a glimpse into their response to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealing the ayat of hijab. They responded immediately. Which brings us to lesson number seven. Lesson number seven is that your receptivity your receptivity or response to Allah's command is contingent upon your heart's preparedness for it. Your receptivity or your response to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's commandments is contingent upon your heart's preparedness for it. They were prepared. Their hearts had been prepared. Their hearts had been prepared. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala waited 18 years to reveal the verse of the hijab to prepare the believing women for this particular paradigm shift. So this is the dilemma that we are dealing with today. The young Muslim women that you see on Instagram that are wearing these skin tight garments, these are not overgarments. Let me say it again. Sisters that are on Instagram that are wearing skin tight skirts with a hijab on, that is not an overgarment. For all you seamstresses that are selling what you call overgarments, abayas, those are not Islamically compliant overgarments. And abayas. They are not Islamically compliant. Let me say it again. Stop saying that it's Islamic fashion. Stop saying that it is a hijab. Stop saying that it is an abaya or it's an overhead. If it is material that clings to the body, that shows your breasts, that shows your hips, that shows your behind, that shows your panty line. That is not Islamically compliant. You can believe whatever you want to believe. But I am telling you, that is not Islamically compliant. 
And the fact of the matter is that you guys keep buying this stuff. So it gives them the boldness. It gives them the boldness to attach Islamic fashion to it. It's nothing Islamic about it. And it actually defeats the purpose of the hijab. The purpose of the hijab is to cover the body so that people on looking cannot see the description of your body. If you have on a hijab, if you have on a skirt or jilbab or whatever you want to call this that you're wearing today, and I can see your curves, I can see your breasts, I can see your hips, you are not wearing an Islamically compliant hijab. Stop calling it Islamic fashion. It's not Islamic fashion. That is a farce. And you are selling your garments, you are selling your material on a lie. And this is why there is no barakah in any of your wealth. This is why there is no barakah in your wealth. Because you are lying to people, tagging Islam or halal on the end of something. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells us clearly in the Qur'an, do not take your shahada as a means of commerce. Do not take your shahada as a means of commerce. Meaning, do not attach halal, do not say Muslim, do not say Islamic so that you can sell it to Muslims. Do not take your shahada, do not take your oath, your testimony of faith with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala as a means of commerce. And that's what we do. We attach halal to it, sold in the Muslim community. We attach Islamic fashion to it, sold in the Islamic community. There's nothing Islamic about it. It's actually a slap in the face. It's actually a slap in the face. It's not a matter of dressing more modestly. You will dress more modestly when your heart has been prepared to receive the commandment of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. I don't care how you dress right now because how you dress right now is contingent upon your heart's connection to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Tell me I'm lying. How you dress right now is contingent on your heart's connection to God. I'm not dealing with your dress. I'm dealing with the root cause. And that is your detachment from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So Aisha radiallahu ta'ala, she said, may Allah have mercy on the early migrant women. These women migrated from Mecca to Medina with not much except the clothes that they have on their backs. The clothes that they had on their backs. And when Allah revealed the ayat of hijab, they tore the bottom of their garments and started to cover themselves. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, I'm going to support my lesson with the ayah from the Quran. My lesson was, your receptivity to Allah's command is contingent upon your heart's preparedness for it. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in Surah Tahaj, Surah number 22, ayah 32. I'm going to support that lesson with an ayah from the Quran. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, ذَلِكَ وَمَنْ يُعَظِّمْ شَعَائِرُ اللَّهِ فَإِنَّهَا مِنْ تَقْوَ الْقُلُوبِ Read the ayah. 
Because if you're following along, you should have an English translation of the Quran with you. I make references to the Quran. So if you don't have an English translation of the Quran with you, then that means that I'm going to quote the ayah and it's just going to go right over your head. If you have the English translation of the Quran with you right now, turn to Surah number 22, ayah 32. And read what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says. And that is because those who glorify the symbols of Allah, then indeed it is as a result of the taqwa that is in the hearts. It is a result of the taqwa that is in the hearts. The consciousness of Allah, the fear of Allah, the awareness of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that is in your heart. That will determine how much you glorify, magnify, and consider, you know, of the utmost importance. Surah 22, Ayah 32. Did not the Prophet ﷺ said, Inna fil jasadi la mudra, idha salahat salah al jasadu kullu, wa idha fasad al fasad al jasadu kullu, ala wa hi al qalb. Indeed, in the body, there's a lump of flesh that if it is sound, if it is healthy, then the rest of the body will be healthy. And if it is unhealthy, then the rest of the body will be unhealthy. And indeed, that lump of flesh is the heart. What we are seeing with Muslim women today is a matter of their hearts, the condition of their hearts. Any Muslim woman, with all due respect, sisters, and you guys know that I love you dearly. I love you guys dearly. But right is right and wrong is wrong. Right is right and wrong is wrong. If you have any pictures of yourself on Instagram with a tight garment on, showing off your breasts, showing off your hips, showing off your butt, I want you to, after this class is over, take it down. If you truly fear Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, if you truly love Allah, if you truly value your relationship with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, wallahi, take it down. There's no amount of likes. There's no amount of likes and reposts that can validate you. Because you're going to keep posting pictures because you are a, you, you are a, a fiend. You are a fiend for, for validity. So you're going to keep posting. And it doesn't matter how many likes you get. Doesn't how many matter how many reposts you get. You're going to post another one. <laughs> you're going to post another one. Because the validation that you are looking for, you will never get on social media. You will never get from social media. I promise you. Absolutely selling your soul for likes and comments and reposts. You sold your soul. You have gone against your morals and your values and that is akin to a person selling their souls. And that's exactly what you've done. No, don't, don't, don't project. Don't say tell the brothers to stop liking the pics. No, because if the pics weren't up there, they wouldn't need, they sit too. Sick is as sick does. They sick too. Don't say, oh, stand in your discomfort. Some of you are very uncomfortable right now because I'm talking directly to you. I'm talking directly to you. 
But as Umar he said, may Allah have mercy on the one who directs me to my flaws and my mistakes. May Allah have mercy upon the one who guides me to my mistakes, my flaws and my mistakes. Don't deflect by saying, oh, tell the brothers to stop. Like, because the brothers liking the pictures is not why you're posting it. So that's, that's neither here nor there. Is not why you're posting them. You're posting them because you're looking for some sense of validation. You're looking for some sense of validation. And social media is just one of the many platforms that you exploit to fill that void. That hole that is in your soul. So don't say, oh, tell the brothers to stop liking the pics. You're not posting them because the brothers are liking them. You're, post you're posting them because you're looking for some type of validation. If you have pictures of yourself on social media that is displaying your body where men, women can see your body, can see the shape of your body, pull them down. If you love Allah, if you fear Allah, if you value your relationship with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, Test yourself and see if you can pull them down. Pull them down and never put them back up again. It's painful. But it should set you off on your real journey. And that is looking for validation from the one that matters. And that's Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. None of these other people matter. And this is why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala... Um, told the Sahaba in Surah Al-Ma'idah, Surah number 5, Ayah 101, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said, Ya ayyuhalladheena amanu la tas'alu an ashya'in tubadalakum tasukkum. O you who believe, do not ask about things that when they are made clear to you, they are going to cause you problems. Don't ask about things that when it is made clear to you, it's going to cause you a problem. The reason why Allah revealed that is because the Sahaba kept saying, when is Allah going to reveal the ayat for jihad? When are we going to be able to fight? When are we going to be able to go to war? And Allah is saying that while you are asking to go to war, you're not ready for that. <laughs> you're not ready to go to war. So don't ask for that because once the ayat is revealed, then you have no other choice but to hear and obey. And so the reason why Aisha remembered this and added this in the part of the story is because these two verses changed the paradigm for women in Medina. These women for the past 18 years have been able to just move freely without any restrictions in terms of their clothing. They were able to just move freely without any restrictions with regard to their clothes. And then out of nowhere, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala reveals the ayat of hijab. So traveling was a bit different now. So that's why Aisha included this in it. She says, so I left out with the Prophet sallallahu and all of this happened after the revelation of hijab. After the revelation of hijab. So traveling was a bit different for women now uh, in contrast to how they traveled beforehand. You guys follow me? So that's why Aisha included this in there. She wanted to give us a timeline and also tell us that this was actually one of the reasons that she ended up in the situation to begin with. Prior to the verse of hijab, women rode on the animals, whether horse, donkey, camel, along with their husbands. Or they rode on their own riding animal. There were no restrictions. 
There were no restrictions. But after the verse of hijab, the women, they rode in what is called a hodench, which is a small compartment enclosed and placed on the top of a camel so that they can take off their hijabs and ride in the comfort of being behind a curtain. So Aisha is including this in her narration because it was a huge event that changed the social paradigm of their society for women. It also shows us the strategic method that Islam uses when introducing something that will impact social norms and traditions. All right? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala reveals intermittently, bit by bit by bit. He doesn't dump everything on us at one time. And so while mothers and fathers and grandparents and Muslims put so much emphasis on, oh, you got to cover, you got to wear hijab, but you're totally overlooking the fact that this person doesn't even know why they're covering. This person doesn't even understand the significance of hijab. This person doesn't even understand who God is. This person doesn't even understand what their relationship with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala should be. You understand what I'm saying? Like we focus on the wrong stuff, man. So for the first 13 years in Mecca and five years into Medina, the Quran's focus was on building spiritual endurance and stamina through La ilaha illallah, Muhammad Rasulullah, considering that many of the injunctions that were to come were going to require an immediate obedience and adherence. So the Quran began building a solid foundation with Iman, with faith. With faith. That is how you build a solid foundation. Not, oh, every time I see the sister, she has on her hijab. That doesn't mean that she's a firm believer. That doesn't mean that she has managed to reach a level of solemn faith in her spirituality. That's not what that means. We are so shallow. Every time I see the sister, mashallah, she always got on her hijab. (laughs) She might wear the hijab because she didn't get her hair done. She might wear the hijab because she's peer pressured into feeling like she has to wear it. She might wear the hijab for a number of reasons. A hijab, wearing a woman wearing hijab is not an indication that she is firm in her belief in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Stop using that as the criteria. I don't understand how that became the standard. Once the hearts have been softened with faith, it will pretty much accept anything. Evidenced by Aisha's description of the early migrant women's receptivity to the commandments of the hijab with very little, having very little at that time. Some only had one garment. Some of these women only had one garment. (laughs) Right, prostitutes in, in Egypt as well as in Saudi Arabia. There are prostitutes in Saudi Arabia, absolutely. They wear niqab. <laughs> they wear a niqab with the line down the middle. <laughs> they even wear niqabs that identify them as prostitutes. And anybody who's lived in Medina knows what I'm talking about. Proceeds to sip tea. For all of you niqabis out there. <laughs> the prostitutes in Saudi Arabia wear niqab. <laughs> So that's not an indication that you have actually arrived at some, you know, solid level of faith in your spirituality. Let me give you a glimpse at what the condition as Aisha, she just told us that what these women did when Allah revealed the ayat of hijab. I want to explain to you the condition. 
that some of these women were in. I want to explain to you the condition that some of these women were in. It was mentioned in Sahih al-Bukhari on the authority of Umm Atiyah. قالت أمرنا رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم أن نخرجهن في الفطر أن نخرج في الفطر وأضحى العواطق والحيض وذوات الخضور فأما الحيض فيعتزلنا الصلاة ويشهدنا الخير ودعوة المسلمين قلت يا رسول الله إحدانا لا يكون لها جلباب فقال النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم ولتلبسها the Prophet وسلم, listen to this. I, I, I want to I want to share, I want to share with you guys what their condition was. What their condition was. Um Atiyah, she said that the Prophet وسلم, commanded the women to come out on the two Eids, the Eid al Adha and the Eid al Fitr. The Prophet ﷺ commanded the women to come out on the day of the Eid. Those women who had reached the age of puberty, those women who were on their menstrual cycle, and, and those women who were virgins. Because virgins usually stayed at home, they didn't really come out and mingle in the community, they're shy, they're modest. But he commanded all women, even the women that were experiencing their menstrual cycle, to come out on the day of the Eid. He said, as for the women that were experiencing their menstrual cycle, then they should stay away from the musalla. They should stay away from the prayer area. But they should witness the call of the Muslims and the celebration of the Muslims on the day of the Eid. So Um Atiyah, she said to the Prophet ﷺ, listen, Um Atiyah, <coughs> Um, had, uh, um Atiyah, <coughs> She said, O Messenger of Allah, She said, Some of us don't even have a jilbab. Some of us don't even have a prayer garment. Don't have a garment to come outside with. You understand? She said, Some of the women don't even have a jilbab. So the Prophet ﷺ, he said, she said, he said, then she should borrow, she should borrow a hijab or should borrow a jilbab from one of her sisters in Islam. <clears throat> Some of these women didn't even have one garment. Some of you have a closet full of overgarments that you don't even wear anymore. Some of you have a slew of overgarments in your closet that you don't even wear anymore. You have them in your closet. You open your closet, you push right past the overgarments because you're past that. You've evolved. You're beyond that now. That was who you were in the past, not who you are right now. Not realizing that you haven't evolved, you have devolved. That's not a sign of evolution that you don't wear hijab anymore. That's not a sign that you have evolved, that you don't wear hijab anymore. You're past that stage in your life. That, that, that's not an indication that you have evolved. You are actually going backwards. <laughs> You're actually going backwards. 
But some of you, you know, you let Shaitan dupe you into thinking that, you know, I don't wear, that's who I used to be. That was back in the early 2000s when I used to wear all black and I used to wear jilbab and I used to wear... (coughs) Right. But now you've arrived. So now you're wearing pants. You're wearing the, the, the shirts that come down to your knees and you're wearing pants. You know, you're wearing these tight skirts with shirts with your hijab and your cleavage showing, you know. And that's a sign that you have evolved as a Muslim. That's a sign that you have, that's a sign of spiritual evolution. <laughs> so we have to look at the Quranic blueprint of tasfiya and tarbiyah, individual, collective, intermittent cultivation. Until we reach the full goal of submission to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Until we reach the goal of full submission to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Allah says in the Quran, in Surah number 25, ayah 32. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, and those who disbelieve say, why wasn't the Quran revealed to Muhammad all at one time? Why wasn't the Quran revealed to Muhammad all at one time? Jumlatan wahida. And then Allah responds, we revealed to it, we revealed the Quran to the Prophet intermittently, shayin for shayin, so that we can make his heart firm. But that is how we get firm in our deen. When we are fed the religion little bit after little bit. When we digest the deen little after little. Until we reach the full stage of submission to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So be mindful what you introduce the new Muslim, the new Muslim or two. Be mindful brothers and sisters what you introduce the new Muslim, new Muslim or two. Stop introducing them to things that, you know, you know, make you feel more comfortable because that's where you are in your practice of Islam. So a new convert, you say, oh, you got to do this, you got to do that, because in your eyes, that's what makes you comfortable as a Muslim. That's what allows you to sleep well at night as a Muslim. But in reality, it is not what makes a person, you know, it is not the proper steps that a new Muslim should take. All right. You guys on uh, Instagram is going to cut off in a few minutes. Uh, So I'm going to cut you off now and then I'll start it back, inshallah. So, you know, you guys have to be, you know, mindful of the things that you are introducing new Muslims to. So, <clears throat> so Aisha, she included this in the narration because this journey was a little bit different for her than previous journeys. It also shows Aisha's precision in narrating the story by including incidents that bring the story into focus. All right. Her ability to recall these outside issues enhances our belief about the authenticity of the story. And it allows us to conceptualize the entire incident. 
All right? It allows us to conceptualize the entire incident. Okay. So, keep it moving. So Aisha said, فَأَنَا أُحْمِلُ فِي هَوْدَجِي وَأُنزِلَ فِي فَسِرْنَا حَتَّى إِذَا فَرَغَ رَسُولُ اللَّهِ صلى الله عليه وسلم مِنْ غَزْوَتِهِ تِلْكِ وَقَفَلَ وَدَنَوْنَا مِنَ الْمَدِينَةِ قَافِنِينَ آذَانَ لَيْلَةٍ بِالرَّحِيلِ Aisha said, now she's speeding up, speeding us up, bringing us up to speed. She said, so I was carried in this area called the Hodij, this little tent that sits on top of the camel. So this journey was a little different for her than previous journeys because in previous journeys, she was sitting alongside the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, was sitting behind the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam on the same animal. Now she's riding on top of a camel inside a little compartment with a hijab or a curtain over the front of it uh, for her own safety and for her own comfort and convenience based upon the commandment of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. She said, وَأُنزِلَ فِيهِ فَسِرْنَا حَتَّى إِذَا فَرْغَ رَسُولُ اللَّهِ صلى الله عليه وسلم مِنْ غَزْوَتِهِ تِلْكِ She said, and when the Prophet وسلم, finished with this ghazwa, finished with this battle, finished with this battle, وَقَفِلَ وَقَفِلَ وَدَنَوْنَا مِنَ الْمَدِينَةِ قَافِلِينَ We headed back towards Medina. We started our journey back towards Medina. And the Prophet وسلم, told us, uh, to travel by night. So it was nighttime and we're traveling. I'm trying to paint the picture for you guys. So they finish the battle of Beni Mustalab. He captures them. He marries Juwadia, frees her tribe, works out all the kinks with them. And now they're on their way back to Medina. She said, but as we got closer to Medina, the Prophet ﷺ told us or instructed us to travel by night. Aisha said, فَقُمْتُ حِينَ آذَنُوا بِالرَّحِيلِ فَمَشَيْتُ حَتَّى جَاوَسْتُ الْجَيْشِ Aisha said, so when the Prophet ﷺ, we had stopped to relax, and then when it became nighttime, the Prophet instructed us to now saddle up, get ready, because we're heading back towards Medina. So it's nighttime. Alright? It's nighttime. <clears throat> Aisha said, I got out of the hodage, I got out of the tent, and I stepped away from the army. I stepped away from the soldiers, the encampment where everybody was. Alright? She said, and I walked into the desert far away from the army. She said, She said that when uh, I finished, you know, <laughs> when I finished you know, uh, relieving myself, when I finished relieving myself, I headed back towards the encampment where the army was. Now, keep in mind, she was, the, the army, the soldiers thought that she was the ones that were responsible for the camel of Aisha. They thought that she was actually inside the tent. They thought she was inside the tent. Little did they know Aisha had gotten out to go use the bathroom, go relieve herself. All right? And, on her way back, she's now on her way back to where the encampment was, and she's going to realize that the army is gone. All right, but pay attention. 
So Aisha said, so I, after I finished relieving myself, I headed back towards where the encampment was. All right. She said, as she continued, Aisha said then um, I went back towards the holdage but behold a necklace of mind alright that was kind of like made out of black beads it had broken. I had a necklace on. So as I'm relieving myself and I'm on my way back to the encampment where my riding animal was and where the army was, she said that I noticed that my necklace was gone. I had a necklace that was made out of black beads and, you know, it was jewelry. And she said that as I felt my neck, I realized that my necklace was broken and I went back to search for it. And it detained me. It held me up. So this is what led up to her being left. She broke her necklace. And going back to look for the necklace. This is what held her up. So by the time she, you know, didn't find the necklace and went back to the encampment, they had gone. All right. This brings us to lesson number eight. Lesson number eight. Sometimes the simplest mishaps in your life can open the door for some of our greatest trials and some of our greatest triumphs. Sometimes the smallest little mishaps in our lives, the smallest little misfortunes can open the door for a trial that will eventually pave the way for our greatest triumph. When you think about this, this was the beginning of the entire ordeal. Aisha lost her necklace. This was the beginning. This was the beginning of her ordeal. This is what set everything off. This is what set everything in motion. This is what set everything in motion. So sometimes the smallest mishaps or the smallest misfortunes can open the door for some of our greatest trials, which will open the door for some of our greatest triumphs. Because this was the beginning of the entire situation. A necklace. That's what this was all about. A necklace that she lost. And she didn't know that this trial that she's about to go through had already been prepared for her 50,000 years before the first human being was brought into existence. So there was no escaping it. <laughs> Aisha didn't even realize that, you know, if it wasn't the necklace, it would have been something else. But you are not going to escape. Sometimes the smallest little misfortunes and mishaps is the door opener for some of our greatest trials, which ultimately lead to some of our greatest triumphs. If you think back to some of the trials and tribulations and things that you have experienced in your life, a lot of times it started off with some small little misfortune, small little something small. You can always trace it back to some small little insignificant incident. But that incident opened the door for what you were about to experience. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, yes, the necklace was just the cause. 
Allah created the sabab, wa huwa musabib. And the scholars of Aqidah, they say that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, he, he is the one who creates the reason. Musabib. He created the reason and he created the situation that leads to our trials and tribulations. Lesson number nine. Don't get caught up in the moment that you lose sight of the journey. Aisha, she never found fault with the necklace. Aisha never said, curse this necklace. I wish I had never worn this necklace. It's because of this necklace I ended up in this situation. She never took issue with the necklace being lost. Which shows you that she understands the qadr. This shows you that she understands the qadr. Don't get so caught up in the moment that you lose sight of the journey. Because sometimes we get caught up in the why. Why did this happen? I, I wish I never did this. If I didn't do that, this wouldn't have happened. If I didn't do this, then this wouldn't have happened. And then you lose sight of the actual journey that this put you on. The Prophet وسلم, he said, Ma asabaka lam yukun yukhti'uk wa ma akhta'ak lam yukun yusibuk. What missed you was never going to hit you, and what hit you was never going to miss you. And this is why the Prophet وسلم, mentioned in another hadith, فَإِن فَاتَكَ شَيْءٌ فَلَا تَقُلْ لَوْ أَنِّي فَعَلْتُ لَكَانَ كَذَا وَكَذَا فَإِنَّ لَوْ تَفْتَحُ عَمَلَ الشَّيْطَانِ the Prophet ﷺ said that if something passes you by, you miss out on an opportunity or you miss something, do not say, if I would have done this, then this would have happened. If I wouldn't have done this, then this wouldn't happen. Don't get lost in the why of your situation. Don't get lost in the why of your situation because you're going to let the journey go right by you. Don't get lost in the why because when you get lost... If, when you get lost in the why, you tend to think that I could have somehow gotten a different result out of this situation. When you focus on the why, you tend to tell yourself, I could have gotten a different result if I would have just did this or if I didn't do that. And in doing that, you're focusing on the why. <laughs> you miss out on <laughs> you miss out on the actual journey and the benefit of the journey. So the Prophet ﷺ said that if something passes you by, you miss out on an opportunity, don't say, if I would have done this, this wouldn't have happened. He said, because this type of if opens the door for shaitan. What does he mean by this type of if opens the door for shaitan? Let me see who can catch this. Because you guys have heard this hadith before, but how many of you actually understand it? Right? You have to wait for the lesson. Why did the Prophet ﷺ say, say, if opens up the door for shaitan? What does he mean by that? What does he mean? Shaitan will always have you doubting the qadr. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. When you say, if I would have did this or if I would have done that, you're opening the door for shaitan. To create doubt in you about Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's qadr. Absolutely. And to bring about more depression 
Shaitan will continue to have you dwelling on the if of the situation until you become consumed. You become consumed with, you know, depression. (laughs) It's okay to feel frustrated. That's a natural emotion. It's okay to feel frustrated. That's natural. But the emotion should not dictate your faith. As the Prophet he said, He said, the eyes water and the heart feels pain. That's affirmation of the emotion. That is affirmation of the emotion. You are entitled to feel. You are entitled to feel. You missed out on an opportunity. It's okay to feel frustrated. It's okay to feel depressed. It's okay. <laughs> It's okay. Your emotions are your emotions. Nobody can take that away from you. Sometimes when we see, you know, sometimes when we see a person going through something, experience some emotion or frustration or anger or whatever from a situation, we tend to, you know, dismiss that by saying, oh, you know, it's the Qadr of Allah. I know it's the Qadr of Allah. I don't need you to tell me that. But don't tell me it's the covenant of Allah in hopes that I would just completely dismiss my feelings about the situation. I'm entitled to feel. Don't take that away from me. Don't take that away from me. The Prophet said, The eyes water. We cry. And the heart feels pain. You understand? He said, but the tongue will only say what is pleasing to Allah. Meaning, despite how I feel, it does not conflict with what I believe. You guys follow me? Despite how I feel about the situation, it does not conflict with what I believe. So Aisha, she didn't curse the necklace or she didn't take issue with the necklace. You know, because she understood that although this whole incident happened over a you know a lost necklace, that this situation was going to happen regardless. Do we think that if we had managed to escape that situation, that the like of it wouldn't have befallen us somewhere else? The Prophet said, "In the Prophet ﷺ, he said that if one trial misses you, another one is going to hit you. If Allah has mercy upon you by removing some hardship or some misfortune from you, right? That doesn't mean that another mishap or another misfortune is not going to befall you. If you miss one, another one is going to hit you. Allah might have mercy upon you. You might make dua, oh Allah, protect me from this situation or that situation. And Allah removes the situation from you, having mercy upon you in that moment. But that doesn't mean that the trial that he has written for you is not going to hit you from another angle. It may catch up to you at another time. Okay? So it shows Aisha's acceptance. Of what started the whole ordeal without any qualms against the qadr of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. She never said, I wish I had not gone back for this necklace. I wish I had not borrowed the necklace from the beginning. This I would have never been in this situation if it wasn't for this stupid necklace. You know what I mean? You know how sometimes we get caught in the moment, right? 
And then we start cursing the situation that opened the door. I wish I had never gone back. I wish I had never done this. If I would have just did this. And in doing that, we are totally missing out on the fact that what was written for you was never going to miss you. (laughs) What was written for you was never going to miss you. Even if you manage to escape it here, it's going to catch up with you over there. Even if you manage to escape it here, it's going to catch up with you over there. Because because what is written will be executed. So it shows Aisha's acceptance. And uh, she never took any issues with that. Right? Aisha, she said, فَرَجَعْتُ فَلْتَمَسْتُ إِقْدِي فَحَبَسَنِي إِبْتِغَاءُهُ she said that I went back to look for the necklace. She said, as I'm approaching the Houdich, as I'm approaching the encampment where the army was, I feel my neck and I realize that my necklace is gone. I popped my necklace while I was using the bathroom. And so she said, so I turned back around to go look for the necklace and this is what held me up. And this brings us to lesson number 10 and that is the importance of amana, the importance of trustworthiness. When someone entrusts you with something, be it a car, be it jewelry, be it information, being it your heart, when we get into a relationship with people, we are entrusting them with our heart, right? So amana, trustworthiness, should be one of the main qualities that you are looking for, (laughs) you know, should be, yes, thank you. The Prophet said, patience is at the first striking of the calamity, absolutely. And we can see that being exercised by Aisha right here in this situation. She never cursed the necklace. She never said, I wish I had not gone back for it. None of that. She accepted the situation for what it was. Thank you for that. Absolutely. But lesson number 10 is the importance of amana, The importance of trustworthiness. So if you are sitting down looking for marriage, I think one of the main qualities you should be looking for with an individual is Trustworthiness. You are about to give this person your heart. <laughs> One of the most important aspects of what makes you who you are. You're about to give this person your heart. You're about to turn your life over and share your life with this particular individual. And the individual has no, no track record of being trustworthy. No track record. So some of us have trust issues Simply because we keep trusting the wrong people. Some of us have trust issues because we constantly keep trusting the wrong person. When someone entrusts you with something, uh, whether it is a car, whether it is jewelry, whether it is information, whether it is their heart, it is your responsibility to handle it with care. To treat it as if you would treat your own. And if you lose it or misplace it or you prove to be irresponsible with it, then it becomes your responsibility to fix it or replace it. If, if I loan you something and you break it or you destroy it, it becomes your responsibility to replace that. Unfortunately, we can't do this with information or we can't do this with someone's heart. And that's the danger. <laughs> Someone entrusts you with information and you prove untrustworthy with that information. There's no way to repair that. If someone trusts you with their heart and you prove to be untrustworthy, there's no way to repair that. All right. 
Unfortunately, we can't do it with information or somebody's heart. So the amana, <coughs> the amana with intangibles is far more important than the amana with tangibles that can be replaced. Your heart information, these are intangibles that you can't replace. This is something that if you prove untrustworthy with these things, there's, you know, there's no way to fix that. If I give you some information and I tell you this is between me and you, and then you take that information and you share it with somebody else, you have broken my trust. You've broken the amana that is with us. As Umar he said, Umar said that if your brother speaks to you in private, if your brother speaks to you in private, and then turns around and walks away from the conversation, then that conversation is in a manna, it is a trust. Even if he doesn't say to you, don't tell anybody. Even if he doesn't have to say that. The fact that I pulled you to the side and I had a private conversation with you, that means that what we shared in that conversation is in a manna. It's a trust. And I don't have to tell you this is between me and you. I don't have to say that. That's for emphasis purposes. You guys follow me. That that's for emphasis. I don't have to say this is between me and you, don't tell anybody. The fact that I had this conversation with you in private is an, is an indication that this is a trust. This is an amana. So the amana, the trustworthiness with intangibles, such as information, a person's heart, you know, these are things that are, that are not tangible. It's far more emphasized in Islam than uh, an amana with things that are tangible, things that can be replaced. Unfortunately, this is the first thing to be lifted from our ummah. This is the first thing to be lifted from our ummah, as the Prophet ﷺ, he said, uh, It was mentioned in uh, the Mu'jam of Tabarani, where the Prophet ﷺ said, the first thing to be lifted from our ummah is amana, is trustworthiness. The first thing to be lifted, to be removed from the social engagements and interactions between Muslims, the first thing to be removed is the amana. It will be no more trustworthiness. More so today than in any other time that I have known amongst Muslims. Anything that you share with a Muslim, whether in a DM, whether in a private conversation, whether in a text message, it is likely that that information is going to end up with somebody else. The probability of that conversation ending up with somebody else is highly likely. <laughs> there is no amanda. Nothing you do, or nothing you say to a Muslim in this day and time is private. It's all for public consumption. <laughs> all for public consumption. And that contributes to our narcissism because we have this thing about us where we want to be right and we want to prove the other person wrong and if it, even if we have to do it on social media even if we have to do it in public we want to make it known that I'm right and you're wrong and I want everybody to see it and everybody to hear it MashaAllah, Tabarakallah the extent that we will go to 
to prove, you know, that we're right and the other person is wrong. MashaAllah, tabarakallah. So the Prophet sallallahu said, أَوَّلُ مَا يُرْفَعْ مِنْ هَذِهِ الْأُمَّةِ الْأَمَانَةِ The first thing that will be lifted from our ummah is amana, trustworthiness. When you can loan somebody something and they lose it or they break it and then you ask the person to, you know, restore what they broke or what they took and the person moves on as if, you know, I didn't break it. And it's just like, but it wasn't there when I gave it to you. <laughs> it wasn't there. And I mean, like, even if, if you loan me something and I returned it to you and you said that this wasn't broken or this wasn't there when I gave it to you, just out of respect for you, I'm going to replace it. I'll replace the whole thing. I don't ever want you to think that, you know, like you gave me something and I returned it back to you broken. I will buy the whole thing and I will replace it, you know, just so, you know, because I value our relationship. Our relationship is more important to me than this material item. And some people have forfeited so many relationships over material possessions. How many relationships have dissolved in our communities over a lack of amana, a lack of trustworthiness, and a lack of respect. I loan you something or I give you something and you know you return it back to me in a way that I didn't give it to you. And then when I point it out to you, I bring it to your attention, it's just like, oh, I didn't do that. Even if you didn't do it, even if you didn't do it, just the fact that I don't want to hear anybody's mouth if I return it back to you. And you say that there's something wrong with it, I'm going to buy you another one. I'm going to fix that because I value our relationship. Our relationship is more important to me than this material item. You guys follow me? So the Prophet said, the first thing that will be lifted from our ummah is, uh, is amana. And check this out. He said, the last thing that will be lifted from our ummah is the salah. The last thing that will be lifted from our ummah is the salah. He said, He said, perhaps, perhaps the person who will be praying towards the last days, there will be no good in him. No good in him. He prays, but there's no good in him. The salat doesn't affect the most important part of his body, which is his heart. Yeah, he prays. I know Muslims who pray, who sell big drugs. I know Muslims who pray, who will Split your wig at the drop of a dime. Spill your blood. He don't care. Muslim, not Muslim. It doesn't even matter. And he prays five times a day. Salat. He said, Perhaps there, you know, there will come a time where people will pray, but there will be no good in them. And this wasn't the first time that this happened where Aisha lost the necklace. And we're going to get down to who the necklace belonged to. The necklace was her sister's necklace. And that's probably why she felt, you know, the need to go back and look for it because it wasn't hers. That's probably why she felt the need to go back and look for it because it wasn't her necklace. And this wasn't the first time that this happened. In another narration, Aisha mentioned that she borrowed the necklace from her sister, Esma. قالت Aisha إنها استعارت من أسماء قلادة. فهلكت فأرسل رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم ناسا من أصحابه في طلبها فأدركتهم الصلاة فصلوا بغير وضوء فلما أتوا النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم شكوا ذلك إليه فنزلت آية التيمم 
Aisha radiallahu in another incident. We're doing text-to-text connections, all right? Text to, we're connecting this text that we're dealing with with another incident that happened that was similar to it. Aisha said on a previous occasion, she said, I borrowed a necklace from my sister. I borrowed a necklace from my sister and I lost it. So this wasn't the first time that she's done this. First time that she did. This is not the first time that she's lost a necklace. She said, I borrowed a necklace from my sister and uh, I lost it. And so the Prophet ﷺ sent some of his companions to go and search for the necklace for me. And while searching for the necklace, it, it was time for salat and there was no water around. So the Sahaba, they prayed without wudu. They prayed without wudu. All right? They prayed without wudu. And when they went back, when they got back to the Prophet ﷺ, they complained about this. And this shows you their diligence in making salat because up to that point, tayammum, making wudu with dirt, clean earth, had not been revealed yet. So they didn't know what to They didn't know what to do. Time for salat came in. There's no water around. What do we do? Do we say we're not going to pray? No, the Sahaba said we're going to pray even though we're not in wudu. We're going to pray as we are. And when he got back to the Prophet ﷺ, they told him what happened, and Allah revealed the ayat of Tayammum, Surah number 5, ayat 6. فَقَالَ أُسَيْدِ إِبْنُ خُضَيْرٌ جَزَاكَ اللَّهُ خَيْرًا جَزَاكِ اللَّهُ خَيْرًا فَوَاللَّهِ مَا نُزِلَ مَا نَزَلَ بِكِ أَمْرٌ إِلَّا جَعَلَ اللَّهُ لَكِ مِنْهُ مَخْرَجًا وَجَعَلَ لِلْمُسْلِمِينَ فِيهِ بَرَكًا So, when Allah revealed the ayat of Tayammum, Usaid ibn Hudayr, he went to Aisha and he said, Jazakillahu khayran, may Allah reward you with good. He said, Wallahi, I swear by Allah that you have never been afflicted with a situation except that Allah made a way out for you of that situation and made the situation a blessing for the Muslims. SubhanAllah, this was the barakah of Aisha. <laughs> the barakah of Aisha. He said, Wallahi, you have never been tested with a situation except that Allah always made a way out for you of that situation and that he's always made the situation a barakah, a blessing for the believers. And so was it in this particular incident as well. Because as we're going to see, a whole group of ayats in Surah An-Nur was revealed and rulings and things attached to the situation even though Aisha was the recipient of the, the more dark part of this situation, subhanAllah. But the necklace belonged to her sister. Lesson number 11, and we'll stop here. Lesson number 11 is the permissibility for Muslim women to wear jewelry. And this is provided that it does not draw negative attention to herself. As Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in Surah to Ahzab, Surah number 33, Ayah 32, uh, So that you do not draw the attention of someone who has a disease in his heart. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in the very next Ayah, Surah number 33, Ayah 33, And stay in your homes if it is not necessary to go out. And do not adorn yourselves. This is going back to the issue of the hijab and the way that many Muslim women dress today. Do not adorn yourselves 
with jewelry, with tight clothing, the way that you used to adorn yourselves prior to Islam. And you think about the way, you know, Muslim women dress today. I, it's really no different than what many non-Muslims are wearing. It, it's really no difference. It's really no difference in the way that you used to dress prior to Islam. Nothing has really changed. You just cover your hair or part of your hair because now you're wearing the hijab with the hair back here. You know, the hijab starts back here and you want everybody to see your baby hair. You want everybody to see how nice your hair is. You understand? Allah says, And do not adorn yourselves the way that you do, the way that you did in the pre-Islamic times of ignorance. And you have Muslim women now who have resorted back to that. When you look at many of the garments, many of the skirts, many of the things that Muslim women wear today, it is no different than the way that you used to dress prior to Islam. It's no different. Totally disregarding the commandment of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But it shows the permissibility of Muslim women wearing jewelry. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, but don't adorn yourself the way that you did in Jahiliyyah. However, the Sahabiyat, they did wear jewelry. They did wear jewelry. And there was no prohibition against this. Um, I'll just give you the proof for that. Um, the Prophet sallallahu on the day of the Eid, he would give the khutbah. And... Uh, he would go over to the women and address the women. So on this particular incident, he walked over to the women, him and Bilal. You guys are familiar with the story. Um, and he walked over to the women after the khutbah, after the e khutbah, he walked over to the women and he began to give a specific address to the Muslim women. And he, from the things that he encouraged the Muslim women to do on the day of the Eid was to give sadaqah. And so Bilal is holding his thobe open, as the narration mentioned. What Bilal basitul thobahu, Bilal is holding his thobe out. fiha nisa While women were throwing their sadaqa into the thobe of Bilal, and what were they throwing? They were throwing their rings. They were throwing their bracelets. They were throwing their gold into the thobe of Bilal. So Bilal is holding his thobe out like this, and the women are literally taking off their rings, taking off their necklaces, and throwing it into the thobe of Bilal. And that's just one of many instances where Muslim women during that time wore jewelry. All right? And of course, this is more importantly when a woman is with her husband, uh, but this is largely determined by the attention and the validation that he gives her. All right? If a man doesn't show a woman attention, then most likely she is not going to pay attention to her own self. As in the case of Umm Darda, when Salman went to go visit Abu Darda, and Umm uh, um Darda came to the door dressed in raggedy clothing, and Abu Darda, I mean, uh, Salman asked her, you know, Mashatnuki, why are you dressed like this? And she said, Akhuka Abu Darda, Laysalahu Hajif in Dunya. Your brother, Abu Darda, meaning my husband, he has no care for the life of this world, meaning he don't care about women, he don't care about how I dress, he don't care about anything. So it would be asinine for a woman to doll herself up and adorn herself for her husband, and he doesn't appreciate it. You know, people are going to most likely treat themselves based upon how they are welcomed by the people that, you know, should love them the most. 
Nonetheless, uh, these are just some of the lessons up to this point, inshallah. Uh, after losing the necklace, Aisha goes back to look for the necklace, and this is what held her up. Aisha said, وَأَقْبَلَ الرَّحْتَ الَّذِينَ كَانُوا يَرْحَلُونَ لِي فَاحْتَمَلُوا هَوْدَجِي فَرَحَلُوا عَلَى بَعِيرِ الَّذِي كُنْتُ رَكِبْتُ وَهُمْ يَحْسَبُونَ أَنِّي فِيهِ So Aisha said, so the army began to move. They began to move out. They picked up the hodage that I was previously in. They thought I was in it, but I wasn't actually in it. And they put it on top of the camel and they began to move out, going, heading home towards Medina while I was not even in the hodage. So we'll stop here, inshallah ta'ala, because this is where the story kind of gets to uh, the turning point where... The situation begins to unfold. You guys have been great. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala bless you all. Wa sallallahu wa ala nabir Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam taslimin kathira wa akhiru da'wana. Alhamdulillahi rabbil alameen.